Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, friends, it is my pleasure uh, for Donna and I both, I speak for her as well, to be back with you. It's been a long hiatus, longer than um, I anticipated, in a sense, um, because we miss you. And so when we're not with you, we think of you and then pray for you. Uh, Pastor Ronald and and I do correspond and uh, speak by voice on the telephone, etc., and meet face-to-face now and then. And he kept me abreast of all good things that are going on and uh, the things that you're undertaking. And it's always encouraging to hear how God is among you, encouraging you, strengthening you, enabling you to face your challenges. And today as we dig into this passage of scripture, you've been working through the gospel of John for quite a long time. And I think it's done the church um, well. It's, it's, It's been good for your soul to move slowly through the book and to allow the themes of the book to speak in the chunks as you've been addressing them. And today, we're going to deal with a passage that is, um, I want to call it truncated. It's part of a greater whole narrative, and I'll address that as we're moving through it. But there are some things happening within the flow of these verses that actually take us, as it were, behind the scenes and indicates something is going on that is deeper and stronger and richer than what we read on the surface of the narrative. Now, having said that, let me lead you one more time in prayer, and and then I'll launch into this passage. Father, I'm praying that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts as your people will glorify you as we think through who you are, all that it is you have done for us as we've been singing and praising you, that you are the one who took the initiative and came to us because we could never find our way to you, nor could we ever appear to you and ask for favor, let alone mercy. We were unworthy of any of those things. And yet by grace, through your love for us in your son, Jesus, you are the one who crossed the barrier and have made us part of your everlasting family by faith in Jesus alone. So teach us, we pray. Stand among us. Underline those things that we need to understand. Reinforce those things that we have learned, but perhaps forgotten or drifted or released. And I pray that we would again discover them, apply them to our heart, and reap the benefits that you have intended. I pray it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to see a a place that um, I grew up in. Our first slide is a picture of the west coast of Vancouver Island. People, when they see these kinds of pictures, say, why on earth are you in Ontario? And I go, that's a very good question. And the answer is, a job brought me here. I was the director of Fellowship International until my retirement. And now I have a married daughter, her husband, and twin boys that are soon to be seven, that keep Donna and I joyfully engaged in 
walking with them in their life and their development. However, we do miss our daughter in British Columbia and her husband and our three grandchildren there that are 13, um, 11, and soon to be nine. So we have five, and we had them for two weeks, those three, on their own with us. We flew them out with us. I spoke at a camp in, in uh, June in, in BC, in the interior. They flew out with us. The parents then flew a week later. We had all five of them, but with other most days for meals and play and great fun. And we finished all of that exhausted, as you might expect. Two senior citizens would feel that way, trying to keep up with all of these people. And yet we said, oh, we have to do this again. <laughs> when will we do this again? And now our house is remarkably silent. Well, except that my wife is homeschooling the two boys, two days, well, four days a week, and having a great time with that as well. She's doing it with her, her daughter. She'd be glad to tell you more about that if you were interested. This is where I grew up. Um, seeing this and experiencing and enjoying it. And the next slide will show you just a little bit more about it. I fished when I was 16, going, I became 17 while at sea, and I fished on a 45-foot commercial trawler. There was the skipper and myself. We were the only two on the boat, and we fished below the Queen Charlotte Islands, and this is often what the ocean looked like when we were on it. Now, why did I do it? Well, I committed to doing it, and once I got in and saw how terrible it was, I knew that so-called friends of mine at school had laid bets that I wouldn't last. And I was determined to prove them wrong, and I did. And actually, in those days, the money was so good, I made more money than my father did as a journeyman welder in the pulp and paper mill. And it helped me then go to university one year, and then I transferred over to Bible college, and it paid, I think, almost all my way thereafter. But the water was like this. It was treacherous. It was wild. And the next slide will show you that a cross current is when two currents flow in counter direction. And what I experienced on the ocean is that you would have the surface that we're seeing, and it appears that the waves are going in one direction, but underneath there could be a current moving in a different direction. Now, it was critically important that we know that, because when you have these great lines with big lead weights on the bottom and all the lines with the lures on the end uh, from those steel lines in the water, you need to know where the water is going to take them. Because if you only see the surface, you think, well, they're going to go this way, but no, underneath, they're going that way. There's cross currents at work that affect your fishing. Now, I want to lean into that because you can see this diagram. The blue is showing the current going one way. The red is showing the current underneath going in another way. And this, in my opinion, is an excellent picture for us to hold in our mind as we watch what is happening to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through these trials. There is a surface current that has our attention, but underneath there is a cross current that is at work that Jesus identifies in this passage. The current below the surface affects all of your lines and lures, but truly the current of God's will and his purposes flowing underneath all things affect the will and actions of men on the surface. 
And we're going to see that illustrated, demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ himself. Because in John 18 and 19, Jesus on trial before Pilate demonstrates spiritual cross-currents at work. On the surface, it looks bleak, and it is. On the surface, it looks like Jesus is being arrested and falsely sentenced to crucifixion, and he is. But there is a deeper work at play, as we'll see and hear from the words of Jesus in this chapter. I just want to remind you that Jesus has already experienced so much before we come to chapter 19. He has had a prayer vigil with his disciples after they've celebrated the Passover meal. And they've gone off together and Jesus is praying and he's praying with such passion because he knows what is coming that it says within the text that drops of blood escaped from his skin and ran down his body. Usually this kind of anxiety, this experience is, is followed by death thereafter. Meaning that you can't survive this. The body is under so much strain and stress that literally the person himself is dying through the experience. Now, we would understand this, wouldn't we? He, son of God, without sin, sharing the glory of his father, in having had this, this earthly ministry, knows that the entire culmination of his work is to be crucified. It's been a shadow that has followed his entire life. He's spoken of it candidly, openly, to his disciples, who at times correct him and say, no, that can't be. God's son would never have this experience. And yet we know this is true. This is what's following. We've read the text before. We, we understand the narrative, the gospel of Jesus, that he is going to be crucified. And he knows that this is appointed by his father. He's agreed to it so that we could become part of God's forever family. Recall that after Jesus um, is at that prayer vigil, suddenly in the night come this huge crowd of people. It says that there was a cohort of Roman soldiers, which could be anywhere from 480 to 600 men. And there were temple guards, soldiers again, that came along with who? Judas, who was to betray him. And in the night, he makes his way to Jesus, and in the shadow, kisses him, and they know this is the man. They come armed with swords. They come arresting him as if it were he were a criminal. And they re recall that after Jesus is arrested, we have first the inquisition by Annas, the former high priest who's been deposed by the Romans for reasons we don't really understand in history. And it's now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is, this, who is the acting high priest. And so we have one inquisition with Annas and a second inquisition with Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is the one who's determined that he should go to the court of the Romans. Because you see, the Jews could not execute anyone through their laws any longer. That was uh, forbidden by the Romans. But the Romans could execute. And Caiaphas was determined that he should be tried in a Roman court. So they took him bound. After those two all-night inquisitions, they took him to Pilate's governor's home, his palace, and asked for judgment. And Pilate first tells the crowd that he finds no guilt in Jesus. And he says, you should be released. 
What you're accusing of him, what you're accusing him of is false. And then Pilate realizes he's got something he can do. He, he can set this man free. So he says, it's the custom on your Passover that we would free a criminal. Which man do you want? Do you want the king of the Jews? And they cried out Barsabbas, who was a revolutionary against Rome, justly imprisoned. And they asked for this man to be released and Jesus to be crucified. Pilate was defeated with his great idea of setting Jesus free. And then Pilate has a, another idea. So he takes Jesus and has him beaten, badly beaten. He turns him over to the Roman guard and they take him into a private area and they beat him. And as they're doing this, they also twist together uh, uh, thorns and make it a crown and they place it on his head with force. And then one of them finds a purple cloak and they put that around him and they begin to say, oh, you're the king of the Jews and they mock him. And they slap his hand and make him guess who, who now was the one, if you're a prophet, who was the one that just hit you? And they beat him severely. Now, why would Pilate, having declared him innocent, beat him? Because that's what we read in chapter 19 and verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. He didn't do it personally. He had his willing Roman soldiers do that. Now, Pilate himself had been a Roman soldier. That's how he came up to the rank of being a governor in the area he was because he came up as a working class soldier, had brilliance, had smarts. He was obviously a person who wanted advancement and was willing to take it. So he had his soldiers beat him. I believe that what Pilate was doing is trying to satisfy their thirst for blood by showing Jesus badly beaten, thinking that will suffice them. But what do we read? It says they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands, meaning they were mocking him, humiliating him, shaming him. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out. And he brought him out in this beaten condition. It's my premise that Pilate did this to satisfy their quest for vengeance and jealousy and their anger and thinking, okay, he's been beaten literally an inch of his life from an inch of his life. He was really badly, badly beaten. And what did they say? So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man! And when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out as a Greek chorus, as it were, in this drama, crucify him, crucify him. And I'm sure it went on and on and on. And Pilate said to them, if you want him dead, do it yourself, in essence. Take him and crucify him yourself. 
But these were cunning, smart, well-versed in all the law, Jewish leaders. They knew they could not do that. If they did that, their lives would be forfeit. They couldn't do it. They had no power or authority to do it. And so they said, no, we, we can't crucify it. They actually point and say, we have a law that Jesus, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. In other words, they're saying he's claimed deity. He's claimed to be God among us. He's claimed to be born of the gods. That's fascinating because of what Pilate says afterwards. The Jews answered in this way, and then it says in verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And you read that on the surface, and you think, now, why would Pilate, where was the fear from? Well, he was right on the precipice of sentencing, what? An innocent man. But now what has happened is they have put him, as it were, on the horns of a dilemma. They've said, this man is claiming to be God and it is against our law. We want him crucified. And understand that Pilate is a public politician. In other words, he's been appointed by the palace of Rome, by the emperor. But he knows he needs to keep the goodwill of the people and the emperor satisfied, or he could be deposed quickly. He could lose his life in the process. And so suddenly he's got this mob in front of him who want Jesus to be dead, and he now knows to satisfy them means he has to kill an innocent man, and he is living with the anguish of that decision. And so he should. He finds him guiltless. He said it twice. I find no reason to sentence this man. He says to them, if you want him to be dead, you dispatch him yourself. And they said, no, we have a law. And he has made himself to be God. The other thing that may be slipping in here is that Pilate may have, because of his own spiritual identity, a perception that the gods do walk among men. I'm not saying he was in any way open to Christian faith. I am saying that he had a kind of fear that says, if the gods are involved with this, who am I to stand against the gods? And he was part of a nation that had many gods, and they worshipped both openly and publicly state gods, and they had priests and all of that order that went with them, but also families had their own altars, much like we would see in Japan or we would see in India today that you have both these social uh, state kinds of recognition, but you also have the family altars going on. We don't know enough about Pilate and his background to understand where he stood, but we see that he is living with fear. What is he going to do next? And in those very moments, the entire scene shifts dramatically because Pilate then comes back into the palace. He's brought Jesus with him, and it's a private conversation in chapter 19 between the two men. Do you, do you, do you see it there? Because as we move forward, in verse 10, it says, he entered his headquarters, his palace, in other words. 
And he says to Jesus, where are you from? In other words, he wants to know who Jesus self-identifies as. What is the background? Where did you come? How is this possible that you have been accused by these Jewish people of making yourself equal to God? What's going on in your life? And Jesus doesn't say a word. Just looks at him. Or maybe looks at the ground. We don't know where Jesus looks. We don't know anything about the response. It simply says that he is silent. And yet I'm confident at this point that his notoriety among the Jewish people wouldn't have escaped the notice of Pilate as a governor. What are some of the things that Jesus is renowned for as this traveling rabbi? Well, number one, he's renowned for being a healer. He's healed the deaf or hearing, some lame or walking, some blind or seeing. He's fed multitudes, or so it's reported. He is reported to have raised the dead. He has a group of people that are following him, but it seems to be that he's an itinerant and sticking to the outlying areas rather than any kind of political clout. And now he's being asked pointed questions in this final conversation between the Roman governor who believes he has the power of life and death in his hands because that's what Rome literally has given him. He can decide who lives, he decides who dies. There is no journey, there is no council, there is just Pilate. Where are you from, he says. Jesus doesn't answer, he's silent. So Pilate references who he is. And he says to him clearly and bluntly, don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? He goes at it. Speak up, man. This is your chance. And Jesus remarkably says to him something that defines the cross current that is at work. Read it uh, with me in verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Notice he doesn't say you're sinless. He says the one who started all of this knew what he was doing. I think it's a reference to Caiaphas. Some would say, oh no, it's a reference to Judas who betrayed him. Certainly he's a principal actor in all of this, but he's not the one who could precipitate the current situation. So that's my rationale for saying I think it's Caiaphas who engineered this out of what we know is jealousy for the influence that Jesus is having in the masses. He doesn't answer other than saying, you couldn't do anything to me if you didn't have authority from above you. So how did this affect Pilate? Well, the verse wasn't read. I'm going to read it for you now. And it says this in verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So what have they done? They've engineered yet one more dilemma for Pilate. They've said, Pilate doesn't stop here. 
If you refuse to deal with this man, we are going to appeal to Caesar. That's the threat. I think it's one they would have acted on personally. But they didn't need to act on it because they were pressuring Pilate to take action. And we will read in future Sundays exactly what transpires to Jesus. But do you see this calm man, Jesus, who's been beaten badly, mocked severely, humiliated, endured all of this, these trials, this mockery, this betrayal of Judas, etc., And then he looks at Pilate and says, you couldn't do a thing to me if you had not been given authority from a higher source. But the one who handed me over has greater sin. Do you hear in the words of Jesus both a challenge, a confrontation that's going on? Do you understand the role that you're playing here, Pilate? Do you really want to move forward on this? You couldn't do a thing except you've been given the authority. But understand this, Pilate, whatever choice you make, you're responsible for that choice. Just because you've been given authority doesn't mean you're off the hook of responsibility. And so you see the cross currents that are at work? Because here on the surface it appears to be that Jesus' life is going to be ended simply by the works of men. But Jesus says, not at all. You couldn't do a thing to me if the authority and the will of my Father were not in play. Not a thing. Know that what is happening to me is ordained by the Father, even though it is being enacted by the sinful choices of human beings. Do you see those cross currents? Men doing their worst, and yet at the same God engineering an outcome through their choices that does the greatest good this world could ever receive. That's remarkable about God. Jesus seems in these moments remarkably composed. There's nothing you can do without my father's agency. He is at work. His plan is unfolding. You could do nothing to me in this circumstance apart from his agreement. Nothing. You're not thwarting him. You're actually falling in alignment with what he wants. But understand your complicity and your responsibility for every choice you make. Do do you see the cross currents at work? There's no fatalism in this equation. Jesus does not say to him, well, no matter what you do, Pilate, God, my father, has decided what the outcome is going to be. Doesn't matter. You're off the hook. You're free. You're simply a peon in all of this. God is moving along. It's a fatalistic, fait accompli. You cannot change the outcome. He doesn't say that. He says, you'd have no power in this if my father didn't give it to you. But what are you going to do with that power, Pilate? What's interesting to me is that he becomes again an opportunist, someone who is eyeing his career and his future, and he doesn't set the innocent man free. It's his choice. 
Do I think that Jesus' words in any way assaged his conscience? Not at all. I think, if anything, it pricked his conscience. Understand, you couldn't do anything apart from the Father's activity. So there's no fatalism in the equation. He's saying clearly on the one hand that God's will is supreme and yet there is a cross current and each and every one of us is responsible before God for our choices and the actions that flow out of them. Human choice and God's will do not exclude each other, but they work by God's design in a harmony that fulfills what he wants and yet he holds humanity responsible for every action and choice. That's true for us, is it not? You see, that's the great application here. Can God and does he bring great good even out of the evil actions of men? The answer is, yes, he does. Does that excuse the evil of men because the outcome is good? Not at all. Because they, intending to do evil, fulfilled it. But God was in it for a greater purpose. And out of that, brought honor to his name and, what, judgment to them. But they did it willfully. They did it freely, but they actually accomplished what God wanted. How then would God hold them responsible? Because they chose to do what they did. Freely, willingly, with gusto, all in, evil. An innocent man. They knew it. God can and does bring great good out of evil actions and choices of men. And the Bible's long narrative summarizes this so that even from the beginning, Adam and Eve choosing to eat the fruit, uh, the knowledge of good and evil and being turned out of the garden and all that came out of it. Paul writes in, in Ephesians chapter 2, do you know, we're born into a lost condition. We're dead. And when we're dead, we approve evil things and we're part of this whole mess moving against the will and way of God. And then he writes in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Jesus Christ. And then writes on, so that in the future he can what? Showcase his goodness to us who deserve his wrath but receive his mercy. There's no one like God. So that even out of all the mess we find ourselves in and the choices that we make, God is at work for his glory and good through the agency of men who resist him to accomplish greater good and his glory. You would have no power if it hadn't been given to you. So what will you do with it? Isn't that amazing to us? So if we take this passage and bring it down, it's the reason Paul could write in Romans chapter 8, and there's a slide here, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. How many things is God at work in? Yeah, everything which is a hard and bitter pill to follow when we're suffering, swallow when we're suffering, isn't it? God, we cry, why? And the answer is, I won't tell you right now, but one day you'll see. 
that even in this, I have not lost you. I will not lose you. I will bring you home. And I will do good for you in the circumstance you now despise and hate and mourn and question. I'm in it. Now, this is a hard doctrine to receive, is it not? But it's a wonderful doctrine to rest in. You would have no authority to do anything if it hadn't been given to you from above. How are you going to use it? What are you going to do with it? How will you respond to the Son of God who's standing in front of you? Right? It's a big question. What will you do with Jesus? Because here is the only name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. The only one. You can go on a really busy self-improvement kick. You can do everything within your power to be better than you used to be, but what are you going to do with all the things you did when you used to be that? How do you undo the damage that you've done? How do you undo the weight of those offenses before God that you know stand as part of your history, part of your record? When you stand in the presence of God and he says, well, let's have a look, you're never going to correct him. You're going to say, no, just a moment. I really didn't have any choice here. Oh, really? Let's go back and rewind the tape and have a look at the circumstance. You know what I'm saying. You can't argue with the just and holy and righteous God. When he said, you should have been better, you go, yeah, I know. So what will you do with your weight, your sin, your offense? The only solution that the scripture gives is the very current we're watching on the surface. That this Jesus, sentenced as an innocent man, willingly laid down his life as the God's son, the only one, so that through his death, God would be reconciled to us because our offenses are paid by him. A Sunday school song I learned years ago that said, I had a debt... I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. That's Jesus. That's what's going on. These are the currents that are at work. On the one hand, we're completely responsible. We need to allow the weight of that to sink in and to drive us, what? To Christ alone who can forgive us and redeem us and claim us. And stand in awe of a God that is able to use all that we're seeing within this scene for his glory and remarkably for our good. We're going to come now, I think, at this point in our service to celebrate communion. And when we do, I want you to have in mind these two great pictures of this chapter. Jesus, the Son of God, humiliated, beaten, judged, and condemned for me. And God at work in the life of his Son to bring me to God. 
It's by his body sacrifice that we are pardoned. It is by his blood that our inheritance is permanently written. It's his grace. And Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority if it wasn't given to you. What will we do with Jesus? Both currents are at work in our world today. The current that is on the surface of human will and decision. And the grace and goodness of God who loves us and gave himself for us. Let us be wise on both counts that we would live an obedient life with the knowledge that the God who loved us is always for us. Father, thank you for your word and the reminder of who you are and all you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that on this awful day, when you stood with those screaming for blood, you spoke quietly, directly into the life of this ruler. You could do nothing except for what's given you. And an unanswered, unasked question, so what will you do? God, may we choose to be obedient to you and do those things that please you for Jesus' sake. Amen.